Welcome to the sixth episode of The Tar Sands Diplomat, a novel of the Canadian Foreign Service. It's read by the author, Keith Halliday. If you've made it to episode six, we're assuming you're enjoying the story. If so, please tell a friend or tweet about it. You could also post something on the Facebook, or if you're in Moscow, on vContact, or whatever your social media addiction is. You can reach Keith Halliday at khalliday at tarsandsdiplomat.com. And now... Thanks to the magic of GarageBand and SoundCloud, here's Keith with Episode 6. The Tarsan's Diplomat, Chapter 7, Clubbed to Death Like a Baby Seal I arrived early at the mission the next morning. Julian and I had a lot of tedious work to do about flights, hotels, dinners, seating arrangements, gift exchanges, food allergies, protocol, and more. We also had to spring official news of the visit on the Europeans. They would undoubtedly be ready for us. Their mission in Ottawa would have seen the Prime Minister on television, too. I also had to read the big pile of files in our problem issues. New recruits are often shocked to discover that instead of organizing peacekeeping missions and winning Nobel Peace Prizes, they're supposed to figure out ways to convince foreigners to buy more asbestos, Frankenstein canola, clear-cut lumber, and can-do reactors. The trade commissioners each already had a favorite trade dispute, which I left them in charge of. I gave fur and Frankenstein canola to Cornelia to read up on and waited for the rest of the so-called task force. Kennedy was already on top of her dossiers, of course. I went in search of Julian to check in with him, but Lucille and I couldn't find him. At lunch, I told Lucille to track down Julian and walk down to Place Jourdan to get some frites for lunch. The phones would start lighting up around two in the afternoon as colleagues arrived at headquarters in Ottawa. I wanted to be well-fed and rested for the ordeal. I was in a fine mood as I returned to the mission. I punched in the code to the outer door, smiled at our Belgian staff, and then tapped the code for entry into the inner sanctum. I walked down the hallway and saw my assistant, Lucille, waving her arms wildly in front of the ambassador's office. Her slightly too tight skirt and slightly too unbuttoned blouse looked normal, but she was still wearing running shoes from her lunchtime walk, and there was an unlit cigarette bouncing nervously in her left hand. It appeared that someone in Ottawa had already come into work, and the daily departmental crisis had already begun. Has someone shredded the wrong briefing book? I asked. McGregor! It's an urgence! She shouted. I looked at her sharply. Her mascara had run, and she was slipping into franglais. Something serious was going on. Julian Utherwaite is dead! She wailed. What? You mean in trouble? No! Dead! She shouted. Clubbed to death, like a baby seal. She made a sharp downward arm chop, like a Newfoundland sealer on the nightly news. I gasped. Inside the ambassador's office... My colleagues were milling about in more confusion than usual. What should we do? moaned a trade commissioner. Who's got the security plan? cried another. Glostrom stood up decisively. To the boardroom, he cried. We followed our leader into the boardroom. One of the trade commissioners sat down, then realized it was Julian's usual spot and jumped up as if electroshocked. The ambassador looked uncertain about what he should do next. He reached out slowly and picked up the paper sitting in front of him. It was the agenda Lucille had laid out for the next staff meeting. Ambassador Glostrom stared at it for a moment. Unless there are any objections, I propose we insert Julian's murder at the top of the agenda. Julian's colleagues nodded gravely, as if this were the bureaucratic equivalent of a moment of silence. A trade commissioner suggested adding a sub-bullet about calling headquarters to see if about the proper procedures for engaging grief counsellors. I was speechless. Lucille began talking. McGregor told me to find Julian, but he didn't answer his Blackberry, Nobody had seen him since the weekend, and he didn't answer his home phone either. So I got worried and got the key to his apartment and went over there. She paused and looked up. 
He was laying in the living room, face down in a pool of blood, totally naked. What did you do? gasped Cornelia. I called back here and talked to Kennedy. She and the ambassador's driver came over right away. She started to sob. He was laying right there, with a statue covered in blood, right beside his head, shaped like a bear, wearing a suit. What? I exclaimed. A statue shaped like a bear wearing a suit? Oh, God, said one of the trade commissioners. It's part of the meeting. Ottawa told me Julian brought the set back from headquarters to be the gift for Can-Do Canada. We must have stared at him like he was mad. Let me explain, he said. It's a set of Inuit carvings, a bunch of animals in suits and various poses around a table. It's by a young Inuit artist. He's won all kinds of awards. Canada Council, Governor General. I was just typing it up. He grabbed a page out of a file and began to read. The artist uses traditional carving techniques to create pieces that speak to the dichotomy between traditional culture and the modern world on Baffin Island. There was a long silence as we thought about this. Was anything stolen? asked one of the trade commissioners finally. Yes, we couldn't find his Blackberry wallet or a money clip or his computer, and there were porn magazines all over the apartment. Wait, I said. Did you wait for the police before searching the apartment? No, replied Lucille, looking puzzled. Kennedy called the police and we started looking. My face must have given away my thoughts. What were we supposed to do? cried Lucille. Just stand there until the police arrived? Exactly, I said. The forensic investigators need the scene undisturbed for fingerprints, hairs, and all that. But before anyone could speak, Cornelia opened her mouth again. Hey, she said slowly, as if working through a complicated logical sequence. Julian was duty officer. Did you see the duty officer's briefcase in the apartment? There was a sharp intake of breath around the boardroom table, and we all turned to Lucille. She shook her head. Everyone stared in silence at Lucille as the facts sank in. The ambassador looked around in bafflement. What? What's in the duty officer's briefcase? he asked. He never had to be duty officer. Chaos erupted as everyone burst out speaking at the same time. It had phone numbers, passwords, papers, spare keys, the emergency policy manual. I don't know. A silence hung over us, broken only by a final gasp from Cornelia. My Snickers bars. I had a vague recollection of what had been in the briefcase during my time in Brussels years before. They were probably still using the same battered Samsonite briefcase, with the same embarrassingly large Canadian flag sticker on the side, and half-eaten bag of mints wedged into the side pocket. Few took the role of duty officer seriously. All most did was check the duty officer's voicemail and archive the messages until the next business day, scribbling just enough indecipherable scribbles in the logbook to prove he or she had actually checked the messages. After the logbook, there were probably just Snickers wrappers, sticky notes recording the periodic voicemail password changes from 1234 to 9876 and back, keys without labels, yellowed phone lists, and stained binders full of mysteriously useless documents. I recalled, with a shudder, that one also tended to find classified telexes left by accident in the briefcase by duty officers who didn't want to carry two briefcases and crammed their own work in, too. But someone must have a list. Isn't there supposed to be a duty officer manual? asked the ambassador, looking pointedly at the administrative officer. Uh, well, no. Well, the briefcase was in order when I arrived in Brussels, so there was no need to redo it and make a list said the administrative officer. But that was four years ago. Surely we've updated the list since then. The administrative officer had taken a sudden interest in the dust on the light fixtures on the ceiling and sat silently. There was a list, said a trade commissioner suddenly, but then he deflated. But it was inside the briefcase. I remember because the door code was written on it. Do you mean that, for all we know, the case might contain the codes to get into the mission? 
the ambassador looked nervously at the door, as if expecting Taliban gunmen, or members of the Canadian public, to burst in at any second. We involuntarily followed his gaze to the door, which burst open with a bang, as if on cue. The ambassador's coffee flew across the table onto Cornelia's fortunately coffee-colored suit. It was Dirk Beddo from the Privy Council office, and Craig Kravinsky from the Prime Minister's office. Ambassador? interrupted Beddo, ignoring the rest of us. Where's Julian? We have a meeting at the commission in 20 minutes. He's supposed to be supporting me, and I haven't seen him all day. Glostrom stared at him. He's been murdered, said Lucille finally. There was a silence. Kravinsky stared at us expressionlessly. Jesus, can't you people ever organize something with no bad news? He muttered before turning and leaving the room. I stood up. I'm going over to Julian's flat. I'll get the briefcase if it's still there. Otherwise, I'll tell our colleagues to stop getting their fingerprints all over the evidence. Glostrom's mouth opened as if he was about to start quibbling, so I kept talking. If the duty officer's briefcase has the codes for the mission, maybe it also has a spare key to your official residence. I'll let you know. Glostrom's mouth flapped shut, and he waved me on my way. I was at Julian's place five minutes later. Kennedy and the ambassador's driver were sitting at the kitchen table. The driver had a glass of scotch in front of him and looked like he was about to be sick. Kennedy was slumped in her chair, her head propped up by her right hand. She didn't look upset, just exhausted and profoundly sad. Julian was lying as Lucilla described. He was face down in the living room. He was beside a glass and metal coffee table, which also had blood on the corner. Julian must have banged his head again as he fell. The carpet had a wide circle of blood, mostly dried up. He'd probably been dead for a day or two. There was a fly crawling down a dried rivulet of blood on Julian's back. I saw my share of dead bodies when I used to do consular work. I can still remember a pair of teenage backpackers in an African town whose morgue refrigerator had broken down. Or the scorched remains of a Canadian executive who died in a strip club fire in Moscow. They found him under a pile of Bulgarian businessmen at a chained-up fire exit at the back of the club. Then I had to calm down my opposite number from the Bulgarian embassy, who was having a crisis about what he was going to tell the men's wives back in Plovdiv. You never get used to it. This, however, was the worst. I'd never seen a dead colleague before. Then the smell in the room hit me. It was truly ghastly, especially since I knew it was Julian. The statue of the bear in a suit was lying about two feet from his head. The rest of the set was on a side table, with its boxes and bubble wrap piled in a corner. It looked like Julian had been assembling it. There was no point in arguing over disturbed evidence. Is the duty officer's briefcase here? I asked. Nope, said Kennedy. His computer? She shook her head and pointed at the bedroom. Now that Kennedy and the driver had walked all over the apartment, there was no point in staying in the kitchen. I walked carefully into the bedroom. His computer screen and keyboard were still sitting on the cheap computer desk in the corner, but some unplugged wires lay beside where the computer itself had been. I noticed the pornographic magazines Lucille had mentioned. There were five or six in a pile on his bedside table. The two visible on top looked like the more sordid kind. I went back over to the computer desk. I noticed a pile of business cards. Most were for European officials, plus one for Lens Sleeth from West Can Energy. There was also a tourist map for Brussels. It was the kind with a map at the center and advertisements for local businesses around the edge. It was half unfolded with an ad circled. The ad was for Brussels escorts. Then I spotted the printer under the desk. There were a few sheets of paper on top. I pulled out my pen so as not to touch them with my fingers, crouched on one knee and lifted the pages to look underneath. They were printouts from the Brussels escort website, a blurb in shaky English, talked on the left of the page about what exciting companions the models were for the visiting businessman, especially highlighting the Bruxelles VIP massage. 
On the right of the page was a photo of a Russian-looking woman named Natasha, who was wearing only high heels and a very small Belgian flag. It was all deeply shocking. I didn't think Julian's tastes ran to trashy prostitutes. What were they going to tell his mother, I wondered. Thanks for listening to episode six of The Tarsan's Diplomat. If you like the show, please tell a friend or post a review on Amazon.ca. And check iTunes next week for episode seven.